this is Take Notes with Jen Rafferty, where we move music education in new directions. I'm your host, Jen Rafferty, a music educator, author, and huge social science nerd. And I am so excited to go on this journey with you as we highlight the intersection between music education and the social sciences. Hello! Today we're going to be talking about one of my most favorite topics, which of course is brains. Lauren Waldman is one of the few scientific learning designers in the world, and her company, Learning Pirate, shares proven practices of informed learning design from cognitive and behavioral neuroscience. She shared with me that she has always had an adventurous and curious spirit that has taken her all over the world. And while Lauren was passionate about teaching, she didn't want to go into the classroom. And through her travels, she came upon something that completely changed her trajectory. It was an opening keynote that I was doing, and it was neuroscience and learning. I'm like, wait a second, where the heck has this been? (laughs) I'm like, it was my, how did I not know this moment? I was like, stop everything, stop everything, learn everything that you can about the brain and how it learns, because clearly we've been missing this. So, you know, I was at the peak of my career. I was like, you know, director of learning for a very large IT company for the whole country. And I was like, gotta go. I got to learn everything I can. Um, And then I did my certification. So I'm now triple certified in um, medical neuroscience, neuroscience, and uh, as a instructional and learning designer. Teachers are literally brain changers. However, we have very little training about the brain and how it works in any of our pre-service programs. So I'm not saying that we all were doing it wrong, <laughs> but we could be doing it a lot better. But the I think the the irony of, of all of the narrative is that I'm trying to tell people, well, we got to bring the brain into learning. We've got to bring it into what we're doing. And it's the brain that always gets in the way because it loves to just stay where it is. It loves that whole, like, I'm comfortable here. I'm good with what I know. I'll see you later. Oh, you want me to put effort into that? No. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) So so that educational piece, like, you know, has been really big, but what I then realized is that the older methodologies, which are very highly grounded in cognitive psychology and educational psychology, you know, that came well before neuroscience. So it's that behavior that we're really trying to now merge with the functional anatomy and the functional operational system of the brain. So we're still like, you know, the evolution is, is, you know, on its way, but we're still, we're still quite a ways away for, you know, it really getting into not only the classroom, but into like all sorts of like learning development professionals. I want to pause here for a moment and take note on the strange irony. We now know that using information about how our brains work will make for better learning experiences, but it is our brain that is actively getting in the way of learning how to do these things differently. Because the biggest function of the brain is to make sure you stay alive. And if you wake up in the morning, it's done its job and everything else takes effort. And the brain does not naturally want to do more than just keep you alive. So not only do educators need to learn this new information about how cognitive neuroscience can help inform learning design, but we need to figure out how our own brain works so we can actually learn the stuff. Then we can start to dive into some other really important things that we seem to have been missing. There's topics on, you know, memory, which we don't talk about in learning, which is insane. <laughs> it's like, we just think it's learning. I'm like, no, it's learning and memory. Because <laughs> what's the point if you're, you know, if you're putting all this stuff in, but you can't get it out, then, 
or if it never just got in in the first place, then you can't use it. So I think it's a big, big topic of discussion, um, you know, that's been missing from all educational settings. It's they, they forget the memory part. And the crazy thing is, and myself included, you know, years ago was you ask anybody, do you know kind of what the process of memory is? And most don't. (laughs) And yet they're in the classroom trying to embed memories in, in children's brains. So it's, it's, we've got, we've got some, some work to do. So I asked Lauren to explain to me what happens in the brain when we learn new things. So much happens. Like even as we're talking right now, our brains are doing like they're, they're doing things in there they're, they're growing things. They're rearranging. It's, you know, the, it's my, I have got like, you know, a tree branch growing out of a circle in my brain right now to represent your face. Cause it's the first time we've actually seen each other live. So, I mean, that in itself is pretty crazy. <laughs> and I think what people don't realize, because again, we've never been taught this is that for all of those 86 billion circles and treat, like I, I just going to dumb it down like entirely. Right. It's like, it comes down to like circles of cells in our heads that are growing tree branches that represent like our experiences. And they're literally, as I'm sure you've seen by now, they're literally growing out just like a tree and roots. And when you sort of break it down to that process and when you're able to see it and you see how long that process takes. So first you've got to grow these things. If it's a new memory, if it's a new experience, you have to grow it. But where I think people don't know, it's at the smaller junctions of those, like those little things called synapses. And the way that I describe this, so people understand, it's like, if you were to take your hand and coat it in, in like icing frosting or like frosting and then dip it in sprinkles, all of those sprinkles would represent the things that are allowing your brain to allow you to do everything that you do in your day, like breathing, moving, thinking, speaking, looking at colors, listening to music, all of it. And when we understand that basics, that like it's really what's moving around in there, then we can start understanding what a true learning experience is because those are the things that have to change. Those are the things that have to rearrange. Sometimes they have to die in order for us to learn and encode a new memory. So when we reframe even what we believe learning to be from a external process of like, you know, no, let's get all the information in we're receptacles for knowledge to a hold on a second. (laughs) There's actually things that need to move around in our brains and change to learn, then that's kind of one side of the story, right? So we take it from that neuroanatomy, the neuroanatomy and like the chemical process and all of that. But then how do we take that and then merge it with the cognitive psychology and the theories? And when you do that, you get this gorgeous harmonization of what a true learning experience can be. And as the journey began down the rabbit hole of cognitive neuroscience and learning, something else started to happen for Lauren. And to be honest, it started happening with me as well as I started to explore this research. When I started my journeys and started learning, I was very in it and I was very motivated because I'm like, this is going to be amazing for work and it's going to change my profession. And it's going to really, and the more that I learn, I'm like, yeah, great. That stuff is wonderful for all of those things. But the profound difference it started to make in me as a human, because I was started starting to understand my own operational system was like 
way more significant to me <laughs> than being able to design more effectively because I can design more effectively because I can understand myself as a human more. You know, it's just that, you know, if we were all born with like operational manuals of how the brain was working, we could just like years one through five. Okay. Got it. I can just like keep reading, <laughs> but that doesn't happen. So, you know, it's, it's when we're not exposed to this knowledge, but then you are. And like, for me, it came like much later on in life I was like, this has been crazy. Um, so my brain can do that and it's that powerful and I can use it for all of these different things in my day to day. I just thought it was there. (laughs) I thought it was just, you know, the machine that allowed me to do all the things, but now it's, we can talk learning and memory and, and lesson designs and planning and all of that for hours and hours. But when you really break it down, it's about us and, and what we know about us and how to use it. And to me, those are the keys to the kingdom. If you can understand how your brain works, you can have a beautiful working relationship with it because you can't control your brain. But if you know how to use it, you're able to open up a world full of possibilities. If I could teach everybody one thing, it would be the skill and the practice of metacognition on multiple different levels of that. And for those who don't know what metacognition is, it's your ability to think about what you are thinking about. It's your own awareness of your cognitive processes. For me, it goes well beyond cognitive processes because if you have the ability to harness your attention in order to focus in the moment, then you're able to recognize not only what I'm thinking, but also how's my body reacting to this. And sometimes the body is responding well before, you know, your brain catches up, right? It's like, you you have to sort of pay attention to which is, which is happening first, because sometimes it's like, I can feel those nerves sort of in my body temperature going up, or maybe your palms are getting sweaty, whatever your physical reaction is. But then my mind's going to like, start talking to me going, I don't like what's going on here. I'm like, but my body's already responded. The, the response has already been triggered. So when you have those sort of metacognitive skills to be able to tap into your body as well, like, oh, I feel what you're doing there. What's the thought that's going to come with it? Now I'm in a little bit more control of the situation. I'm not in control of my brain. Like you can't control the brain, but I can work with it. My narrative is most, and um, why the way that I educate is um, joining forces with it. We're not going to control it. So like everything that learning pirate does is about joining forces with your brain, learn about it so we can work with it. So now how do we use that information in the classroom when we're having some sort of learning experience for our kids? When we're in a, in a sort of an intervention of learning of any types, yeah, it's the brain and we need to make sure that's happy, but what's the brain attached to, you know, it's attached, it's the whole system, right? Like if, so, you know, at the beginning of a, of a learning, um, you know, activity or intervention class, whatever, I, I love to stimulate the acetylcholine, the dopamine, and the serotonin, which is those beautiful chemicals that, you know, they make us happy, they make us feel good, but they also work with memory. So they're part of the process of encoding memory is like all of these chemicals that work together. So I love to insert those at the very beginning of anything that I'm doing, you know, I mostly work with adults now. And I did, I was on in a conference session yesterday and I started the session off by asking everybody, like, what is something that you're just like horrifically bad at? <laughs> like, what are you so bad at? Right. And see your response. You're like, okay, yeah, I know that there's things that I'm really bad at, but instantly it's like, you're smiling, you're recalling a funny memory. Boom. 
you know, you've got something, you know, you've released some of those chemicals and that in itself is a really great effective design tip is when you start that brain off with that, you know, release and that I'm relaxed and I'm going to enjoy, well, then you're already on a really great path, you know, whatever you're doing. But when you come into an environment and, you know, every, every one of us comes with something, right? Like maybe you had a crappy day or like, if you're working with kids, you know, kids are very emotionally unstable, (laughs) you know, their motivation, same like our, you know, as adults, motivation is completely unstable. So like we could be really ready to go with, you know, half an hour before we walk in and then we get there. We're like, I am so not feeling this right now. (laughs) So we can stimulate and work with the, with the brain in order to, you know, be like, all right, well, what can we do to sort of put that smile on your face? And and change the chemicals a little bit to help that process of getting ready to learn. So that's like one little thing. Um, you know, I was um, in this conference yesterday and it was about supporting adolescents and they're like, okay, well, we know that the adolescent brain is informed. It's not fully developed. Right. Like, so, and I, you know, we all can look back at our teenage experiences and be like, that was so dumb of me. <laughs> that time, that time that I thought it was super cool to take my parents' car without a, you know, without a license and just like go buy some French fries with my best friend. True story. <laughs> like that was really dumb. So, you know, it's if we know that that part of the brain isn't fully developed yet, that part that's, you know, helping us be logical and problem solve. But that, uh, we also know that that part of the brain is also there as we, as it's developed to regulate our excess of emotions, then, okay, we've got to kind of do a little work around, don't we? We got to like figure out methodologies. So can we tap into the body then? So, you know, the vagus nerve, which is like, you know, it can relax and reduce the anxiety response through breath you know, which hits the back of the brainstem, you know, can we stop in the middle of an intervention? Somebody asked me the other day, you know, before we go into a test, we know that like, you know, anxieties are high. And I said, how many teachers do you know before a test happens, will stop and, and do some breath work with their students and just bring that down. So there are a couple of important takeaways here. First is that the adolescent brain does not function the same way as an adult brain, even though some of our students may look like adults. It is not fully developed, and as teachers, we need to be responsive to their cognitive developmental needs. Their brains are still working out how to think logically and regulate their emotions, so our pedagogy in the classroom needs to be reflective of who they are at that time. Breathing is a fantastic technique for self-regulation, and if you're interested, there are links to some breathing videos in the podcast notes. So knowing all this information is one thing, but it's quite another to make it part of our teaching practice. And sometimes that's where the challenge lies. By the time you're about 35 years old, your neural pathways of what you've already got in there are very strong. Like, so I think if you can sort of um, envision the brain as a bunch of different highways and pathways of behavior and habits and skills and knowledge, when we want to change those, or we want to like, you know, create a new learning, new behavior memory, it's, it's really, that's when the work comes in. And so it's more of, you've got to look at it from, am I unlearning something that feels really uncomfortable because it's very challenging. So we've got two sort of avenues. You've got a, a new learning intervention, which is sort of where I was when I started with neuroscience. 
it was literally, I think I was in my, my mid thirties at that point, And it was like being back in kindergarten all over again. Cause I had no, I, I couldn't even pronounce some of the words I was looking at. Like acetylcholine, I can say that now, but when I first, I was like, literally like aceta, acet, acet, I'm like, what, what the hell? Yeah. What is this? <laughs> like, so it's, that itself can be a challenge. And, you know, when, because it's like our brains are very comfortable because our brains are really there to keep us safe and keep us protected and keep us alive. So when you go outside of that comfort zone, it's going to challenge you back and going, do you really want to do this? (laughs) It's kind of hard, right? So it's, it's up to us to get past that hump of the, of the new challenge. So there's one side of it. Then you've got other sort of other angles of this, which is, okay, let's say that you've got something in your brain that you know, and the thing that you want to learn now is very similar to that. If we don't work to distinguish and use sort of our attentional networks and be able to focus on what makes it different, it's going to go back to what it already knows. It's a natural progression. So that's why, you know, even when we, and we've, if we sort of circle back and, and look at metacognitive skill and how this helps is when you're asking yourself consistently in a learning intervention is what do I know? What do I think I know? Which is where we're always going to get caught up. And what do I definitely not know? And this is why we need feedback. This is why we need people who can like reflect to us or like testing or activities, things that will show us these things. Then we're in a better place to understand what's that learning progression going to look like? A really important aspect here is making sure that we continue to get this information about what we know, what we think we know, and what we don't know during the learning process, not afterwards in a summative assessment, but as a part of the feedback loop and reflective loop as we learn. And this is where I also asked her to explain the difference between curriculum design and learning design. If teachers stop looking at learning from the day to day, right? So if we stop lesson planning and we start learning designing, there's so much more that we can utilize, right? So one really great one is, okay, so let's, let's contextualize this when it comes to design, right? And so if you're a teacher and you are embedding into your daily classes, right? If you've got a theme that you're working with or a topic, um, but if you're embedding in those lessons and you have to do it strategically and intentionally while you're doing your planning, ways to check in on where your students are in the moment, then you can know, oh, majority of them already know this. I don't need to talk about this anymore. I can literally buy that time back for myself and move on. Or maybe if I'm not sure, then I'm going to embed an activity in there. And it can be anything, you know, anything that's contextually relevant to what they're doing. But if I embed an activity, you know, let's say the next day, if we're continuing on from that, the next day, just as, and it's almost like a trap. It's kind of like you're like trapping and tricking them to see, did you actually know that? Do you really know that? Or do you think you know that? Okay. So that becomes a measurement for me in real time. But then it also is helping the students to go, oh, crap, well, I thought I did know that, but I didn't know that I didn't know. It's up to us as the people who are designing the learning to implant that, to show them, right? And then in that intervention, I think if we're, if we're taking this like that step further, is explain to them what just happened there. You're like, totally cool. You thought you knew, but you didn't know. It's because that's what your brain does. 
it believe it makes us believe that we're overconfident. It sort of increases our own knowledge of our own abilities. But until we're given an opportunity to to really reflect and test that, then you don't know. So that's why you get to your test. You're sitting there going, but I thought I knew this. I thought I knew this. And then you don't. So that to me is like a massive, massive intervention that when you learn how to intentionally and strategically design with it, you're getting the measurements from the teacher standpoint. And then the students are also getting that sort of self-awareness piece that if you continue to do that, that's how you can help bring the practice of metacognitive skills to your students. Once they keep having those moments of awareness and you keep explaining to them, this is what just happened. This is how you do this. And you keep embedding it in them. You continue to do that throughout six to eight, even six to eight weeks of doing that. And their skills are going to continue to build. They're going to have a subconscious to conscious awareness now of like questioning themselves. Do I actually know that? And I think for all of us, I mean, come on, Jen, you've probably like, you've read a book, you've started at the top of the page, you get to the bottom, you're like, what was at the top of the page again? (laughs) But we keep going, but we keep going, we keep going. So it's, you know, I could ask you about that book that you read and you'll give me like a very high level overview of like this and character and that it was a great story. But if I asked you something very specific about a skill that you were supposed to get from that particular book. and transfer it for me. Show me how would you practically use that? Be like, oh, I don't really remember exactly. Okay, let me go back and read that again. And let me just like, okay, so you did. So again, for the classroom, for us as everyday humans, organizational learning development, we waste so much time because we are not learned. We don't know how to learn exactly. You know, we don't know the process of it for ourselves. So we're continually going back. Now, if we could stop that process through practices and skills of metacognition, imagine how much more time we'd have. We'd be much more efficient. So this is something that I'm, you know, obviously I I advocate for and I speak, you know, like really strongly on because not because it's like a great, but the way that it changed, I'm my own best experiment all the time, all, all the time. This has changed the name of the game for me. I can now stop what I'm doing when I'm working, when I recognize the fact I've been working on this for a half an hour and I'm still not sure of what I'm doing here. Stop. I'm not going to waste another two hours Googling or, you know, trying to like look something up or I'm no, I'm going to like stop, recognize that I don't know what I think I know right now. And then go around and see, okay, what are the resources for me or who are the resources for me in order to like solve this? And that's metacognition. So of course, I now needed to know about Lauren's dream for the future of education. If I saw like a perfect like system, like if we could do something to change the system right now, first of all, teach teachers how to learn first and teachers be okay with the fact that we never, none of us, none of us ever learned how to do that. Be okay with that. Just wave your white flag. Like some of me, like I had to do it. I was in the profession for 20 years. I had to wave my white flag. I'm like, oh boy, crap. No, I don't know how to learn. No one ever taught me how to do that. That's okay. I'm going to learn it now. Let's, and then, you know, learn how to little bit of the, the design aspect of it, right? Learn a little bit about the functionality of the brains that you're trying to literally change. But then, you know, if I could sit down with the, you know, I, if I could sit down with a school and say, okay, I've got the music teacher, I've got the history teacher, I've got the math teacher, I've got all the different teachers and look at all of what they're teaching and find the ways that they can all work in their classrooms to support the learning of the other and doesn't have to be all the time. 
But if you were aware of those things and you were constantly all reinforcing the other learning and giving these little beautiful brains ways to see it in different ways because they might not understand it or network it only in the history class. The schemas and the scaffolds in the brain, you can build on them and they don't always have to be the same topic. I think that's where we've always been stuck, right? Here's our history chunk and here's our math chunk and here's our science chunk and here's our music chunk and they don't have anything to do with one another. So just learn in this bubble. If we stop that <laughs> and we look for the interrelationals and how we can build across across function, then you're giving that, op- that brain an opportunity to learn from multiple different avenues and transfer the skills into multiple different places. And while some school districts are working in that direction, in general, we really have a long way to go. However, I encourage you to take some time and learn about your brain and the learning process through the lens of cognitive neuroscience. We're not going to change everything overnight, but if we all do our homework and make small changes along the way, our impact on our students' learning can be enormous. If you're interested in learning more about Lauren's work, check out her website at learningpirate.com. And she's also on Instagram, Clubhouse, LinkedIn, and Twitter, all at learningpirate. And all of those links are in the podcast notes as well. If you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and share with a friend. Until next time, this is Jen Rafferty. Have a wonderful day. This podcast was brought to you by Jen Rafferty Music, cover art by Molly Reagan and Good Neighbor Art, and music by John Kiefner.